0: Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, President of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. And good afternoon and welcome to this edition of News in Focus. We're glad that you've joined us. Well, we have some good news for you today. And we're going to talk about some good provisions that were passed by the Ohio General Assembly this week and uh, bills that went to the governor's desk for signing. We're going to give you a breakdown on that. In fact, at the bottom of the hour, we'll be joined by Greg Lawson of the Buckeye Institute, who will giving us a, a point for point on the state uh, uh, budget, uh, what's in it, what's not in it, and uh, what to expect going forward. But uh, some good news we want to share with you, of course, today is June 30th. We actually uh, uh, do the program on Wednesday, and then it's played throughout the week. So uh, today is June 30th. It's 2021. Today was to be the deadline in which the D-Day Prayer Project, or the D-Day Prayer, had to be added to the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. As we've told you in times past, there was a deadline to the legislation that we got passed and signed into law. Actually signed into law seven years ago this day, on June 30th, 2014, uh, President Obama did sign the World War II Memorial Prayer Act, which adds FDR's D-Day prayer at the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. Well, what is the good news? Well, the good news is the Park Service determined that the addition of the prayer at the Memorial means that uh, that is not held to the same standard of the Commemorative Works Act, of which you just have seven years to place the prayer. So that gave us the time we needed to complete it. So Uh, Really, next year at this time, we will be talking about the prayer in the ground, because by next June of 2022, it's going to be dedicated. The final plans, uh, the funding's been secured for the most part. There's still opportunity for additional costs uh, for the project. If you want to make a donation, go to ddayprayerproject.org. Some additional costs have come up, but we're talking about the final plans. Construction by later this year in 2021 and dedication on June 6th of 2022, so we want to thank God for that, and it's been a long time coming, but... You know, be patient, because that's how the promises are obtained. I'm reading from Psalm 107, and verse 8, it says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And so we want to thank God for the, the answer to many prayers, to get that prayer added at the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C., all 515 words of president fdr's d-day prayer if you want to learn more about that project and go to ddayprayerproject.org and we'll be giving you more updates and having some special guests on to talk about that and giving you updates too to join us next june for the dedication of the prayer and also there will be opportunities with bill fetter and with dave barton and other historians tours in washington Uh, we're really looking forward to it teaching our young people about our american history and uh, our American government. That's what we're about at the Ohio Christian Alliance. Well, we're going to go to a news clip that came out from the State House News Bureau about vaccines. Another good news is a provision was put in by State Senator Andy Brenner. He's with us on the phone. We'll get to him in just a minute. But let's go to this report from the State House News Bureau.
1: Ohio's public schools and universities won't be able to require their students or employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19 if Governor Mike DeWine signs a bill passed by the Ohio Legislature last night. The bill bans public schools and universities from requiring vaccines that haven't been fully approved by the Food and Drug Administration. All COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. have been given emergency but not full approval. And while they've been rigorously tested with very high effectiveness rates, Republican Senator Andrew Brenner said some parents are not comfortable with those shots.
2: This is about personal rights, but it's also about making sure that our students are protected and that parents, are making the decisions, and college students are making the decisions about
1: uh, their own personal rights. The amendment was attached to a bill that makes it easier for children of military families to enroll in schools. The bill wouldn't apply to private schools or public hospitals. Republicans voted for it and Democrats against it, as it did in the House when the COVID vaccine mandate was attached to a different bill. Joe Ingalls at the Ohio Public Radio Statehouse News Bureau.
0: Well, we're talking about vaccines, and we're talking about the government requiring vaccines. Look, if you've got the vaccine and that was your choice, you know, that's your choice. There are those, though, who, for medical reasons and personal choice, our uh, health reasons are not getting the vaccine. So there ought to be that option. No one should be required to take the vaccine. And we've been making that argument. Uh, and a lot of our folks have been saying to us at the Ohio Christian Alliance, we've been getting calls and saying, hey, I can't even get a religious exemption. I, I can't take the vaccine. I'm not comfortable with the vaccine. There are reports about the vaccine. And so for whatever their personal reasons are, again, they, they're not criticizing people that do take the vaccine. But they want the choice not to take the vaccine. And some people, for health reasons, aren't taking the vaccine. We're talking about the COVID-19 vaccines. That's uh, basically Johnson & Johnson. Um, uh, There's Pfizer and Madura. They were the ones who provided the early vaccine. It hasn't been fully approved by the FDA. We're still learning about the virus, and we're still learning about the vaccine isn't, you know, isn't for everybody, shall we say. With us on the phone is State Senator Andy Brenner, who put this uh, amended language into House Bill 244. Uh, Again, people are really applauding this effort. They're just learning about it. And Andy, they're very thankful for what you and your colleagues were able to do. Welcome to the program.
2: Well, thank you, uh, Chris, for that. And uh, yeah, I I want to thank my colleagues, the Republican colleagues in both the House and the Senate, because uh, they agreed to the amendment. Um, and as was described uh, by State House News, the amendment is, is simple. It, it is essentially says you cannot discriminate uh, against uh, students in primary and secondary school or colleges that are all public uh, institutions uh, for whether you take a vaccine or not. And uh, we did put an exemption in there so that if you know, you've you got uh, Ohio State University or any other universities which are operating a hospital or healthcare facility, uh, those uh, students are in fact exempt from this law. Uh, I would have liked to have included everybody, but you know this, this was a compromise, and this was a compromise that I think is a, a very reasonable compromise. And it's one that I think going into the school year, because we will be out of session for the next couple of months. Uh, we will not have time to debate these uh, the, the vaccine and, and uh, the COVID-19 vaccines and these bills. I felt that this was appropriate. I think my colleagues felt this was appropriate. And again, this this actually even goes to what Governor DeWine said back in January when asked about uh, the uh, vaccines being required for health, health care personnel who operate in nursing homes, he said that was up to the individual nursing home and that the state would not require it. So I'm, I'm hoping, based upon you know those prior comments, that this would uh, carry through uh, to uh, this, this amendment that went into uh, House Bill 244.
0: We're talking with State Senator Andrew, Andrew Brenner, and uh, we're talking about the language that was passed this week in House Bill 244, and basically states that if you don't Uh, want your child or your college student to get the vaccine, they are not required to get the vaccine. Uh, That passed both chambers. The bill should be signed by the governor sometime in the next 10 days. But the week began with other drama, and let's take a look at that. Here I'm reading from the Columbus Dispatch, Ohio House passes bill that would prevent employers from requiring COVID-19 vaccine. This is about everybody in general that their employer might say, well, to work here, you're going to have to get vaccinated. Well, again... Lots of people, for personal reasons and health reasons, are choosing not to get the vaccine. They may have already had COVID-19, believe that they're immune. They have the uh, immunities to uh, uh, COVID, and uh, there's no reason for them to get the the vaccine, in their view. And, you know, in fact, some physicians are... Uh, telling people if you've had the the sickness, maybe only get the booster shot. So even physicians are starting to draw back a little bit and saying, "No, uh, look, you've got the immunities." But uh, again, here comes some employers that are uh, beginning to force the issue, and we've gotten a lot of calls, uh, Senator, into our office about this issue. And so that amendment was put in a House bill. But things changed in the Senate. Uh, it didn't pass both chambers. That was kind of left off the table for down the road, as they say. But again, you were very proactive talking to your caucus, talking to your leadership, and got this very uh, important language uh, in there for young people and co- college age and K-12. through And again, lots of parents were concerned because they're seeing, hey, these kids aren't being affected by COVID-19 like the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions. Conditions, there's no need to rush to give these kids an, truly an unproven vaccine. And you could say it's not been approved by the FDA. It was approved under emergency measures. If people have caution, I think uh, that we have freedom in this country, for Pete's sake. I mean, they should be able to opt out. Your thoughts?
2: Absolutely. In fact, uh, in my floor speech, I pointed out the fact that there have been many hearts. Uh, issues, uh, with, uh, young men, uh, and, and boys, uh, who have had the vaccines, and it's causing, uh, issues there. Uh, the VAER system, the vaccine adverse event reporting system, uh, has, uh, I think 380,000 anomalies have been reported since January of this year from these vaccines. Wait,
0: repeat that, that please. In, the, what's that number?
2: The VAIR, The VAERS system, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which is uh, operated by the CDC, uh, has had 300 and approximately 80,000 adverse events uh, to uh, vaccines uh, since the first of this year. Uh, There have been thousands of reported deaths from the vaccines uh, reported to the VAERS system. Again, this is a self-reporting system that is uh, operated and managed by the Center of Disease Control. And what this is, this was put into place in the late 1980s to give liability immunity to the the manufacturers of uh, vaccines and pharmaceuticals. And since uh, 1990, there have been about 1.14 million adverse events. But since the first of the year, 300 and approximately 80,000 of them have occurred since January. So to me, this is still, this is an experimental drug. Um, it, may, it may save millions of lives, and I'm not trying to dispute that. I think that if in, a, in the senior population in this state, which was also the population that had by far the most most deaths, in fact, the median age of death in the state of Ohio was 80. Um, I I think that, you know, for them, the risks uh, outweigh uh, the benefits uh, for, you know, not getting the vaccine. So I think that they, they, they probably should get the vaccine. But for younger people, this is something that it's creating other anomalies and their risk of death from COVID is almost zero.
0: I'm looking at two articles this week, one from the Epoch Times and one from Reuters. Again, these are very reputable news sources. Here it says, as of June 11th, more than 1,200 cases of myocarditis uh, have been reported to the U.S. Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS, out of uh, about 300 million uh mrna vaccines does administered the cases appear to be notably higher in males in the week after the second vaccine dose the cdc identifies 309 hospitalizations from heart inflammation in persons under the age of 30 again that goes back to the younger population okay of which 295 have been discharged here are the um Here's another report from the Epoch Times that says myocarditis higher than expected among male military members after second uh, Myrna COVID-19 vaccine dose. So, you know, these are studies that are coming out from re- uh, reputable sources, uh, Senator. I mean, this goes along your lines of theory, uh, thought here, of caution.
2: Absolutely. And, and if you take a look at our data, while any death is tragic, uh, the deaths uh, in Ohio— uh, for anybody under the age of 30, there have only been uh, a handful of them. Uh, almost all of them had comorbidities or other major issues uh, with their health. Uh, so, you know, th- this is something where the risks uh, for students and young people uh, for taking the vaccine may actually be higher than the actual vaccine, uh, than the actual virus itself. Now, the variants and all. Uh, We've, you know, there's some suggestion that, okay, the other variants are out there. From what I've read and what I've seen in reports, the variants are no more deadly than the the original virus. And in fact, if it's a typical virus, uh, it would actually get weaker, but more contagious. And it appears to be happening uh, with this uh, particular virus.
0: Well, again, uh, our people are calling the governor's office and telling them to, you know, keep uh, House Bill two forty four the way it is. The the governor does have the power of the veto pen of a line item veto. He doesn't have to veto the whole bill. He can line item veto. We're asking the governor not to do that in case, in regards to this language. Again, very thought, well thought out, and uh, gives the types of exemptions for the medical uh, universities who are requiring uh, for their. Uh, uh, personnel to take the the, uh, the vaccine, but for the general public, for these students of college students and K through 12, it doesn't uh, uh, include private schools, but it's uh, public uh, schools from K through 12, and uh, that's high school through college. Uh, now do not are not required if this bill goes into law. And again, the governor has up to 10 days to sign it. Uh, I can't see him vetoing this uh, language, uh, Senator, because, again, like you said, he has stayed all along. He's not going to require vaccines. It, he, it, you know, this would send the wrong sit- signal from the administration if they were to do this. Your thoughts?
2: I absolutely agree. I mean, in fact, uh, this passed both chambers. It was a partisan vote, but it passed the Senate 25 to 8. It passed the House 62 to 34. Uh, The House needs 60 votes to override a veto, and the Senate needs 20 votes to override a veto. So we have more than enough votes to override a veto. This was a very measured uh, uh, amendment. It did not include private businesses, and I know many of your listeners uh, will definitely want to include everybody. I have a separate bill, uh, Senate Bill 169, which would do that. But I and there's a bill in the House, as most people know, a House Bill 248 and I, I think uh, House Bill 350. So there's several bills out there dealing with that. But from a timing standpoint, uh, was, this was a measured approach. Again, we did exclude the medical community uh, inside these universities. So to me, I feel like this is something that is is reasonable. It is something that needs to happen. And I would hope that the governor uh, signs the bill.
0: Again, the vaccine is readily available for those who want the vaccine. Uh, I think that uh, we are reaching herd immunity. In fact, we looked uh, last week at the Ohio Department of Health numbers. In fact, uh, they're down to 26.8 cases per 100,000 residents. So we've gotten be- below even the governor's magic number uh, when the restrictions were lifted off early this month uh, with the f- uh, face mask uh, mandates social distancing and all that and people seem to be going out and uh uh getting the economy going and enjoying themselves and having a good time I mean it was the weather was in the 90s yesterday senator and I went by one pool a public pool area they were shoulder to shoulder in there uh trying to stay uh cool but nobody you know so again the infection rate is very low thank the lord for that Uh, But, you know, why would we be facing this thing about forced vaccinations of our children? It doesn't make sense. They're the least vulnerable. I mean, even those of us who have gotten COVID and those younger members in our family, they didn't get it as as hard as the older population did. Okay. Which is includes me. Right. Uh, So, uh, I mean, just to, to look at the facts, even people can see the science themselves by their own experiences with COVID. Your thoughts.
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the data was very clear from the get-go. Uh, the death count, again, I mean, all, almost all deaths, and I'm talking 92, uh, 93 percent of all deaths in the state of Ohio were over the age of 60, and under the age of uh, 30, uh, basically it was statistically zero. Um, there were, uh, you know, a few dozen deaths uh, underneath underneath the age of 30, but The risks here, uh, you know, students can get it and and they're going to survive it. Uh, This isn't something they should be worried about. But I think this should also put the minds at ease of parents and families knowing that the government is going to mandate something on them. And there's definitely concerns. I've been getting uh, emails and and information that some school districts were contemplating uh, requiring vaccine of uh, COVID vaccines uh, this fall. And uh, this is something that is, is definitely a, a concern, especially uh, given the fact that if you're under the age of 12, you're not allowed to be given a vaccine because there just isn't enough data there. Uh, so even the age group of, of 12 to 20 or, or younger adults who are in college, I, I think this is something that, you know, we need to have it in place, uh, if anything, to send the signal that it is up to individual responsibility And it is up to individuals to make those decisions and families. Uh, And it isn't going to be the government mandating or telling them that they have to do it to participate in a sport or they have to do it to uh, to go enroll in a a public school.
0: Well, and again, we would be remiss if we weren't talking about some of the stories that are out there. Uh, There are girls who have become infertile after getting the vaccine. There are uh, people who have died uh, after getting the vaccine. Uh, There's been, uh, like you said, a number of anomalies. I've talked to people personally, again, uh, non-disclosed, those are health issues, but uh, who have had problems with the second dose of the vaccine. Uh, You know, not what you would call your just normal discomfort and maybe some symptoms of the uh, sickness of COVID, but other problems. And so, again, all this is very new. It's not been fully proven or vetted by the uh, Food and Drug Administration. It hasn't received um, its uh, uh, approval yet, and so again, we should be proceeding with caution at this point. And again, since the infection rate is so low, we're we're building herd immunity. But like you said, Senator, there were those. On the liberal left, quite honestly, they were pushing that kids, all everybody's needs, to get vaccinated. It's like, wait, and, and they're so autocratic about their way and what they want to do. It I tell you, I got some very passionate calls into our office and said they're not going to do that to my child. You know, and they're reading the things out there and they're frightening stories. Quite honestly, and uh the, to think that somebody would put their child's life at risk by forcing the vaccination uh, was just causing a lot of people to blow their tops again. Well, let's hope that the governor does the right thing, allows this language. To to stay in or i think this thing's just going to keep well let's just put it this way there'll be a firestorm brewing uh because parents will not sit down for that your thoughts
2: i absolutely agree and in fact the parallel here is the left who is always saying on abortion that it is my body my choice even though it's clearly a fetus and a baby uh they were absolutely pushing that we should be allowed to essentially force vaccinations. i mean this this has just been a bizarre uh discussion and uh, But no, I, I think uh, that the governor would be in the right to sign the bill into law. Um, again, most people, they, they have the opportunity to take the vaccinations. Uh, there's plenty of vaccines out there. Uh, so they should be allowed to make that decision, especially given the fact that this is an experimental vaccine. And again, this does not touch any of the approved vaccines that have been approved by the FDA for mumps or polio. All of those are, are, are approved. Uh, that this amendment does not do anything to touch any of those types of vaccinations. And I know there's some people that would like th- those included as well, but this was a very measured approach.
0: Well, again, Senator, thank you for all your work on this. And again, uh, we started posting it up on social media. People were applauding and very, very thankful. And uh, we're going to be putting out this program over uh, the Internet as well and through our podcast and, of course, through broadcast. People are listening to it right now. And I know there's a lot of parents right now are very, very thankful for the work that you've done on this. And again, we're talking with State Senator Andy Brenner, uh, who basically put the language into House Bill 244. And uh, you might want to send a note to the governor a very kind note telling him that you want that language to stay in that that gives the vaccine vaccine choices meaning that uh, students would not be required uh, because the governor is going to consider that within the next 10 days and getting a kind note of affirmation to keep the bill as it is would be uh, well to do to do that so again senator thank you for all your work on this
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, I I will be putting in a kind word to the governor to uh, do just that.
0: All right. God bless you, my friend. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: And again, that was uh, State Senator Andy Brenner. And uh, we're thankful for the work that he did on this uh, vaccine freedom, quite honestly, for those of us who have chosen not to take the vaccine. And many of us have had COVID and don't feel that we need to, and for other health reasons and personal choices. So we're thankful for that because we are uh, a, a republic and freedom. Well, stay with us on the other side. We're going to talk to Greg Lawson of the Buckeye Institute and break down the budget that was just passed point for point. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. And we're back, and we're going to be talking about the state budget that both the Ohio House and the Ohio Senate had a late night on Monday night and basically came to agreement. And then, of course, as their constitutional requirement is, they passed the biennium budget. Uh, The vote was 82 to 13 in the House and 32 to 1 in the Senate. And we're going to talk with the... um, Uh, all the expenditures that were in this budget it was uh, 75 billion dollars over the next two years and uh, it includes a number of things including school funding with us on the phone is greg lawson he is senior fellow uh, researcher at the uh, buckeye institute and he is man on the scene there in columbus uh, for all this to give us a breakdown greg welcome to the program
3: hi great to be on as always chris
0: Well, thank you, Greg, and again, thank you for your fine work there at the Buckeye Institute and all that you do. Uh, This has uh, been an interesting week, a busy week for you, of course, and I I just want to say, of course, last year with COVID, you know, you weren't able to be there in person as you were this year, so that was a little different for you. Tell us about that first.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that uh, for those who really kind of want to understand how government operates and watch the process as as it really comes down to the wire, uh, it's really indispensable to kind of be down there. Of course, that might entail being a few late nights. They uh, and actually, this budget cycle is a little bit earlier uh, than some past ones were. The last one actually went into overtime, and they had to actually do a temporary budget to get the before they could pass the full budget. But this one, they they got done uh, basically on time. But it was still late night uh, on Monday night as the House and Senate were report, uh, voting on what they call the conference report, which is the final version of the budget that is sort of ironed out between uh, the two chambers and a lot of times has some, some working, you know, the governor usually has some influence and is discussing what's going on there so that, in general, they try to the, the pass something that has uh, as few line-item vetoes as possible because the governor here in Ohio can line-item veto provisions in in a legislation that has spending in it. And, of course, the budget has a lot of spending. And actually, I'll point out the, the actual budget, it's interesting. There's there's two ways of looking at the budget. There's, there's what they call the general revenue budget, which is when you think of all the state taxes that come in, like income tax and sales tax predominantly, and a, and a couple of business taxes as well. Uh, but when you uh, – uh, that's the number that you actually had cited. But when you look at all of the federal money uh, and a lot of other like license fees and various things like that across different agencies, the actual two-year budget is over uh, $160 billion dollars. Uh so it's it's really 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 big and it's growing a lot and some of this is a little bit uh maybe a little artificial because there's a lot of federal money that is flowing into the state of Ohio uh as a result of a lot of the COVID relief packages uh but this is just a massive amount of spending uh that's in there uh hopefully uh, the general assembly realized that some of this is can only be used for one time Type of investments. They they said that that's the case on some of these bigger ticket items uh, where they're using federal money. Uh, but it's a big one, and it's something that we're going to have to watch as we go through the next two years to make sure that the uh, the appetite stays <coughs> in the tractor, Uh because you can run out of control. And the challenge with a budget of this size is once you've spent that money, there's people who want you to keep spending that money out there. Well,
0: that's the right, generation. and I want to go back to previous year. Uh, That was uh, Governor Strickland, who received money from the Obama administration. It was $8 billion, if I recall that correctly. And uh, what that ended up becoming is an $8 billion uh, budget hole that they were trying to find a way to fill, because, again, uh, they were programs that wanted funded at the same levels two years later. That $8 billion was come and gone, as they say. And uh, Governor Strickland, Democrat, he faced a very difficult situation, of course, then— he was unelected, and Governor Kasich was elected um, because of that. Uh, but, uh, again, these are the uh, budget woes who might be in the same situation with all the spending coming out of Washington, uh, flowing back to the states, like you say. Hey, look, free money, you know. it's like. And, again, uh, my concern is, Greg, and I know at the Buckeye Institute in which your fiscal hawks, Uh, this is going to be pilfered away down into local communities. It's not going to be used for infrastructure and paving roads and uh, the kinds of things that we need in our communities. And uh, bureaucrats, once they get their hands on that money, uh, it will just disappear magically, okay? And so, unfortunately, nothing ever comes of it. And uh, that's so sad. I hope that's not the case. We pray that's not the case, but uh, we shall see. Well, let's turn the corner. Let's talk about tax cuts and refunds. Uh, the um, There was a 3% minimum amount of uh, tax cut. Tell us about that.
3: Sure. Uh, this is actually one of the bigger uh, tax reforms that we've done in a while here in Ohio, and it's a good thing, uh, so I, I kind of want to start off and say that. Uh, what they I did is they did a 3% across-the-board rate reduction, Uh, So anybody who's paying state income tax gets at least a 3% uh, income tax cut. But they did two other things as well. Uh, The first thing is they actually uh, increased the amount of income that an individual must have before they pay any income tax at all. So now, uh, as of July 1st, after the governor signs this, uh, for the next tax year, if you make $25,000 or less in Ohio, you will pay zero state income tax. And they've actually been doing this for a while, as recently as about five or six years ago. Uh, if you had as little as $5,000 worth of income, you still had an income tax liability. So they have actually been moving to essentially uh, drop folks off. And so lower-income folks, who you, know, you hear a lot of progressives wail and gnash their teeth about you know, things not being fair uh, for people of lesser means. Well, we're, we're, the state is dropping a lot of those folks off to try to give them relief as well. And then they also actually eliminated the top uh, bracket. We, uh, the income tax here in Ohio is obviously progressive. Again, about 10 years ago, we had nine different brackets uh, that had a higher rate as you went up in the brackets, and they've been eliminating some of these brackets over time, both at now the top end and at the bottom end. So what they're essentially doing is they're flattening the tax. They're flattening the income tax. Um, And we're not there yet, but we're now down to four brackets. Uh, So we've actually eliminated in 10 years five income tax brackets, uh, which makes things a lot more simple for compliance purposes. uh, And it also makes things fairer uh, for everybody who is uh, still, uh, you know, subject to the income tax. So this is actually a really big step. uh, And legislators uh, across the board here deserve credit for, for doing
0: that. When I look at the $25,000 a year and below, I'm thinking of those on fixed income and, like you said, uh, those on uh, meager incomes. But I'm also thinking about our elderly. And one of the things that came up on the floor discussion was the homestead uh, tax exemption, and I think our seniors, and I remember pastoring in the inner city, well again, someone's on a fixed income, uh, they own their home, but the local taxes is causing them to have problems financially. I've seen where actually city officials have uh, foreclosed on a, a, an elder's home. We often say at the state house, uh, you know, when it comes to nursing homes, we want people to stay in their homes as long as possible, and seniors want to stay at home as long as possible. When when their physical and mental state will allow them to do so. But yet, the you know, this homestead exemption tax, and I know some of the Democrats were pushing, they'd like to see that uh, push broader, but one representative said, our state auditor is looking right now, where, well, there's people that take advantage of the current uh, situation of the homestead exemption tax, and that is... Um, they if you own in one case a guy owned two homes well it's like that's not the picture of an elderly person that has their own home and you know on a meager income if you have two homes then you're you're fudging the system and that's the problem there's always people that look to cheat uh but again i think these are the kinds of things that can help our seniors and they need to be looked to but again catch the cheaters and uh, make them pay kind of thing your thoughts
3: well and the more simple you make a tax code the harder it is for people to cheat the, the way, you know, scofflaws and scoundrels hide behind complexity. So the more complex you have a tax code, the more brackets are, the more different ways that you define income and, can, can, and, th- and frankly, the different kinds of tax uh, breaks that are available uh, can be uh, misused. I mean, they, they, oftentimes there's, you know, a good purpose behind them. Uh, But then what you find is that people do the things that you were just describing, Chris. And this is why we've long been a fan of getting rid of tax loopholes and simplifying and lowering the rates for everybody so that you have a simple tax that does what it needs to do for the core services that government should be doing, uh, but not doing a lot more than that, but doing what they should be doing. And then uh, not giving all of these different avenues to folks to be able to find clever ways to essentially either cheat the system literally by breaking the law, or uh, sometimes they may not technically be breaking the law, but they're essentially violating the spirit of the law and the spirit of fair fair play. And we don't want that to happen. So the flatter that you can have your taxes, the simpler they can be, the less opportunity there is for bad actors to sort of manipulate the system. And then really everybody who's playing by the rules ultimately have to pay more because those people are not paying their fair share. And then everybody who's still who, who isn't doing that, ends up having to pay proportionately more to, to compensate for that. And that's just not right.
0: Cheaters, and that's I right. Cheaters pay. always make it worse for everybody. Let's talk to something that's uh, directly in the Buckeye uh, Institute's wheelhouse, and that's about municipal income taxes. Uh, um, this is, of course, this last year where a lot of people worked from home. But yet, the you know, so since they were working from home, Normally, so if you, you, your employers in an, you, you're employed in another city, you paid a portion of your income tax there. But if you worked from home all during COVID, and many more people, businesses are now saying, you know what, we'd like you to stay at home working. Uh, we don't need you back at the office. Tell us about the municipal income tax issue. Was that put into the budget? How, do, how was that played out?
3: There, there is uh, a partial fix to this, and I think the, again legislators deserve credit for this. Uh, obviously, the Buckeye Institute is actually litigating some of this uh, as we speak uh, to, to 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 clarify this and to because the whole point is what's happened is cities uh, are are taking tax money, local tax money, for work that is never done in their area. You know, so when people are working from home and they don't set foot, if you live in a suburb or a township. And you go to Cleveland or Cincinnati or Akron or whatever it is, but you have been working remotely for during the whole you know pandemic, and now maybe on an ongoing basis as as time will see, uh, you haven't really used the services of that city, and that's the whole idea behind the municipal income tax is you're charging people to because they're leveraging the services that you have that you provide when they come into an office or wherever the location of work is, but that doesn't apply if you're working remotely. But yet these cities want to hold on to that funding, and that's that's not right. Uh, we don't think it's constitutional either, and again, we're, we're litigating that point. So what the legislature did is they, they fixed some things uh, on how businesses have to do withholding in terms of who they, they, uh, with, which jurisdiction they withhold in the income tax side. But most importantly, they guaranteed that individuals who are working remotely in 2021 will be able to seek a refund uh, from uh, the jurisdiction where their office is located if they aren't working there but are in fact working remotely from a different jurisdiction Uh, now uh, that is a partial fix as i mentioned because we think that it should go all the way back to 2020 and the beginning of the pandemic that's right if it's true in 2021 and it's true on an ongoing basis which we think is is right it's also really true for 2020 as well um the general assembly decided uh, uh to be silent on that question and my sense is that uh, whether it's our litigation or whatnot, uh, that is something that's going to have to be decided by the courts as to what happens for the tax year 2020. But I will give the legislators, again, credit. They recognize that you can't keep doing that. You can't keep having cities reaching into people's wallets. uh to, quote-unquote, pay for services that they, in fact, aren't rendering for that
0: taxpayer. Yeah, That's right. That's exactly right. Okay, let's turn to school funding now, because there was a big overhaul in school funding. Give us a breakdown on that.
3: Yeah, and actually, I'll say there's there's also a really one of the best highlights of the budget is the school choice provisions. Uh, for everybody who has been able to take advantage of a, one of the scholarship programs that are out there, like the EdChoice program, uh, this budget is uh, probably, if not the best budget for school choice that I've ever seen. It certainly uh, ranks in the top two, uh, and, and I actually would have to say it's pretty darn close to number one. Uh, They did a lot of great work on school choice. They created an education savings account for the first time in Ohio history. So from a school choice standpoint, for families that are looking at uh, different options, the right option for their their individual students, especially students who suffered an incredible amount of education disruption over the last year, uh, this is a budget that has a lot uh, to commend uh, in it. Now, the school funding piece itself, which deals with the state share of how you spend for public, uh, public uh, schools, uh, was a very big, uh, in fact, it was the largest uh, point of contention between the House of Representatives and the state Senate. Um, House Speaker uh, Bob Cupp uh, has been uh, working in the education policy really for years, even back before he was in the House because uh, he used to be a state senator uh, uh, 20 years ago, and he was working on stuff back then. So he's really had a real passion for this. And he had been working with a lot of different uh, groups, mostly public school uh, groups, uh, to develop a funding plan that uh, they perceive as, as more fair and correct and that would forever dispel any concerns regarding the uh, constitution, the state constitutionality of school funding. Um, so they had a proposal, uh I will say that some of the things in that proposal I had caused us to have some concerns regarding long-term costs to the state. Um, the Senate had some of the same concerns that we at the Buckeye Institute had, and, and they, they made a substantial changes to the funding. Ultimately, it went back to the House proposal, but is limited to two years right now. So it's going to be for the next school year, basically, uh, but they're going to have to revisit this again, uh, likely in the next budget and see if this is something that they, they think is going to be sustainable in the long run. I'll be candid. We have some real concerns here at the Buckeye Institute about that, uh, and I think we're going to be looking into sort of looking in the long run to see how the funding formula uh, works. Uh, there's School funding is one of the most painfully complicated things in state government. Uh, there are not a ton of people who really fully understand it because, you're dealing with uh, state taxes, you're dealing with local taxes, you're dealing with the interplay of both of those two things and how local control interacts with what the state does. So it's really, really complicated. Um, at the end of the day, the, the state's going to spend quite a bit more, more money uh, uh, in, in, in schools here over the next couple of years, uh, which is, you know, there's a lot of debate about how you're doing that. I think there are some things in the funding formula that it gets right, uh, but I do have some concerns that it could be something that could cost the state an awful lot more money than people fully appreciate at present. So it is a work, I would characterize it as something that is going to have to be a work in progress as we look to not so much next school year, but as we look to school years beyond that, I think we're going to have to be very, very careful about
0: it. How far are we from, uh, away are we from where the money follows the child? Uh, you know, different programs. Some have called it the backpack pro- uh, project uh, where, you know, the, the student gets funded and then they can make the choice of where they want to take their funding to be. So, so really, that's ultimate school choice. Uh, that didn't get done, obviously. Where, where, how far are we away from that type of uh, full school choice options in Ohio?
3: Well, I will say that this budget, especially with how they did some of the things with the existing school choice programs, uh, I would say that we are closer, but closer is a very relative thing. It, 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 we're a long ways off and and part of the reason why is because it is an extremely complicated issue. Um, you know, essentially, the state spends a very different amount in different school districts depending on the nature of the individual school district. If you're a very wealthy school district with a lot of property wealth and you have high-income taxpayers that live in the jurisdiction, the state doesn't actually spend nearly as much per pupil in that district as they do in uh, more uh, economically disadvantaged districts. Uh, Essentially, the state plays Robin Hood, where it pays more to the poorer districts and less to the the wealthier districts. Uh, And, Uh, in order for it to pay the same amount across different jurisdictions or to pay the same amount on a per-student basis, uh, you would have to do a lot of things very differently uh, than we do now in terms of how we break up and and sort of have this uh, state and local kind of partnership. You'd have to really change that in a very deep, fundamental way. So it is extremely complicated because, really, you'd be looking at do do you access local taxes then, at the same time uh, as you do the state spending. So it's something that we're working on at the Buckeye Institute, getting us ever closer to that. As you see expansions of school choice programs and you see more opportunities for larger numbers of students to avail themselves of it. For example, uh, they got uh, there was a 60000 cap on the Ed Choice program in Ohio, which is the largest voucher program in Ohio. Well, that cap has been eliminated in this budget. Um, now, there's still some income uh, or yeah income eligibility standards, so it's not a universal voucher. Were
0: standard. those changed at all, the uh, income eligibility standards? Were they changed or altered at all? There
3: were a few tweaks to that, uh, but there are, uh, and I'd have to actually go back and see exactly what those are. Uh, so there were a few tweaks that made it a little bit broader on the eligibility, but to be clear, it's not universal. So it's not like a backpack or the money following the student idea. It's 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 moving in that direction. There's a larger number of students that would be able to avail themselves of vouchers now, and again, they got rid of the caps. That's when I say we're moving in that direction. This budget does do that. Uh, But it is still, uh, uh, because you have some of those criteria that is still in place, it's not universal, and we're going to have to work for for a while to sort of navigate, again, how do we navigate the local issues, the local tax dollars that still are a large share of education spending in the state, along with the state dollars.
0: Okay, turning another corner real quick. Uh, the pro-life provisions in the bill. Explain those.
3: Yeah, there was a number of things. We're continuing. I know that uh, there's a lot of folks who are looking to to continue to make sure that these the providers aren't able to to just uh, sort of turn into these mills. And there's been continuing work uh, to to put appropriate, uh, I think, oversight and restrictions on these type of facilities, there's actually a lot of groups out there that uh, are unfortunately on the other side of the equation here who are uh, being very vocal and I know are trying to put, and I don't think this is going to happen, but I know there was a, you know, to try to get the governor to line item B to some of those. I would be utterly shocked if that happens, uh, uh, given the governor's positions on those over the years. Uh, But I know that it's caused some consternation on that side of things. But there's, there's there's definitely movement in that direction and some more positive stuff. You'll see that uh, occasionally, enter into into the budget here. With uh, they've done this, I think some uh, dealing with uh, the kind of uh, rights you have to have the transport patients and things like that to make sure that you're doing it safely, but it effectively makes sure that people it, it makes it more difficult uh, for for some types of providers to be able to continue doing that.
0: One of the I things I that...
3: forgot to mention one thing in the budget that I, I actually know that you're really interested in, Chris, and so it, it, uh, workforce development. There are some really good provisions that actually got put into the budget. Yes, uh, on on uh, being able to expand nursing bachelor's programs to community colleges, which have you know there's community colleges, many community colleges in the state, and in some places there are nursing shortages and things like that. Um, not everywhere in, in in Ohio, there's some places that are okay, but in those areas that aren't don't do have that. There's community colleges close by that can actually meet some of the demand that's there. So for the first time, community colleges will be able to uh, craft the program and and be authorized to be able to offer bachelor's programs for that. That's a good thing. And there's also a great program that is being funded in the budget called a Second Chance Voucher. This is actually State Senator uh, Serino's brainchild, and he's done extremely good work on this. And so I I really want to give him praise because this will have some funding that's available to... Folks who have some college, but they never completed, and there's over a million of these folks.
0: Oh yeah, that's right.
3: And you know they don't have a degree. And in fact, they've they taken out Pell.
0: They've taken out Pell Grant loans, and they weren't able yeah. to finish. Life came along, and they never got a degree. They, we neither the taxpayer or they have seen anything. All they have left is uh, college debt, but nothing to show for it. Your thoughts?
3: And uh, which is a terrible situation for folks to be in. And especially because you know we we, we still have a lot of there's lots of job opportunities in Ohio, but some of them need certifications, not even not necessarily even a degree, but you need to have certain kind of specifications and go through a program to make sure that you have what you need to go to some of the in demand jobs that are available. This program, uh, which is now funded, it was actually a separate piece of legislation, uh, but they took uh, some of those provisions and put it into the budget, and so it's going to help some of these students. It's right now it's going to start small, but I think that if it shows success they'll be able to uh, put more into this and make it be available to more and more of these students so that we can get them what they were initially hoping to get when they took out all that loans. and now you'll get that certificate or, you know, maybe a degree if that's the pathway that is the right path that an individual chooses. But I think this is extremely important so that we can make sure that we're we're getting the the skills into the hands of individual workers and individual people, uh, and we're doing it in a way that uh, is not going to put them into any more of a dire financial strait than they've already been put in. So I think this is something that is also a really positive thing. Uh, it, it's not going to solve all of those problems I- I yet, but it's another step of the way. And I think that that's another reason why uh, this budget in a lot of ways has an a, a awful lot of good policy in it. Um, obviously, we're concerned about the spending, but the, I think the general takeaway is this is a re- good policy budget Uh, but we need to be very careful about our long-term spending.
0: We're talking with Greg Lawson of the Buckeye Institute. We just got about a minute to wrap up, Greg. One of the things that wasn't in the budget that was being floated around as a promise was to deal with critical race theory in the Ohio classroom. From what I'm hearing you tell me, uh, that no language was put in that would prohibit critical race theory in the Ohio classroom. Is that correct?
3: Not in the budget. There are several bills that are percolating. Uh, I know there's at least two separate pieces of legislation in the House. I don't have the bill numbers off the top of my head. But uh, Representative Don Jones and also Representatives Grindel and Representatives Arthur Fowler have bills that have been getting hearings. Now, we're in the summer break now, so you're kind of in a situation where the legislature's not going to be back until September. But my, uh, from my understanding, they're going to be doing much more discussion on those bills when they return in the fall. Uh, so it's not in the budget, but there is ongoing legislation uh, dealing directly with that issue.
0: And athletic sports betting, which, of course, we oppose, did not get uh, done in the budget. We're thankful for that. And, uh, you know, a uh, number of other uh, public policy organizations opposed expansion of gambling. And so we were glad that that didn't get done. Greg, uh, give us the website for a Buckeye Institute for people to follow you.
3: Yeah, it's uh, just uh, www.buckeyeinstitute.org.
0: Thank you, Greg, so much. What a great review. And again, if you missed any of today's program, you can hear it in its entirety at OhioCA.org. Thanks, Greg. God bless. Thank you. You have been listening to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, President of the Ohio Christian Alliance. To learn more about the issues that matter most to you and your family, visit online at ohioca.org. That's ohioca.org. Thank you for listening. This program is sponsored by the Ohio Christian Alliance of Akron, Ohio.